This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hey guys, and welcome to Personality Bingo with me, your host, Tom Moore. So, this week on the podcast, I am delighted to say I am joined by the wonderful Patrick Frame. Patrick is a columnist with the Irish Times, but the way I came across Patrick well, it was by reading his book, Okay, Let's Do Your Stupid Idea. Uh, if you haven't read it, guys, I can't recommend it enough. Uh, we talk about it a ton on the episode, and I can say it in complete earnestness, it's one of the, my favourite books that I've ever read. I've read it an embarrassing amount of times, I've listened to it, uh, and I really couldn't recommend it anymore. Uh, we talk about it tons on the episode, it'll really give you a sense of what it is, but it's comedic yet personal essays. Um, it's in the style of maybe uh, an Irish David Sedaris and yeah have a read for yourself Uh, I promise you won't regret it Uh, and it was an absolute pleasure to talk to Patrick so without any further ado please give us a share give us a like get the episode out there this is a phenomenal chat with the wonderful Patrick Frank Patrick Frayne, are you ready to play personality bingo? Yes. All right, let's do it. I'll give a quick explainer of how it all works. We've got 60 minutes on the clock. Uh, we've got 60 balls in the machine, and I've got 60 corresponding questions. There's an actual machine. I wasn't sure if there was or not when I listened to it. Yeah, we're not going to use one of these. They have fancy electric ones. We could also use an app, but the app can't. I mean, it can't do that. I was wondering if that was a sound effect. But no, there's an actual <laughs> the, little grid, a circular grid with loads of balls in it. Yeah. And you know what? It was sent to us by a listener. Because I used to have a particularly shit bingo machine. Okay. Uh, and it was like plastic and red and I definitely got it in Smith's. Yeah. Uh, whereas this is kind of legit. So it's happening. Okay. Um, I've also given you a sheet of paper there yeah. with five numbers on it. Would you do me a favour and read out the five? 18, 8, 11, 42... 37. Fantastic. Would you do me another favour? Uh, pick another number to add in there. Something between 1 and 60 that's not already there. Uh, okay. 21. Fantastic. Any reason? No. Okay. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> no. All right. I'll actually, yeah, my thought process went 22 and I went, that's a bit like 42. And then I went, I'll take one off that and I made it 21. But I don't know if that's psychoanalyzable. Yeah, I mean, if it is, I'll give it a good go. Right, will you give it a spin? Yeah. Okay, first number out, we have number 49. Do you have it? Do you have it? No. No worries. Oh, I also should have told you that if all them numbers do come out, that means the tables are turned and you can ask me any question in the whole wide world and I'll give you an honest answer. And also, we have number 69 in the bingo machine, which is obviously outside 1 and 60, but I'm a child and that means that I have a a special Patrick Frayne design question that I will add in just for you if number 69 does come out. This is number 49 though and you don't have it, but the question is, what does love feel like to you? Oh, wow. Um... I think it feels like safety, like I, um, like I met my wife Anna when we were quite young and we were just friends for ages and I think pretty quickly, so we got together like maybe, we didn't get together for years because we were friends for a long time, we were in a band mm. as well for a chunk of time and I think now I just think of Anna as safety and the love is all based around complete trust and and I think then even outside of romantic love that 
I don't know what that says about me. I think of safety. Like, I think that these are people I can rely on and trust. Mm. And I will, um, and I want them to be safe too. Mm. Is that, you're not a psychiatrist, so you can't really, even as I'm saying that, I'm going, does that make me really insecure? Um, And I think it probably does. Because when I was younger, we moved around a lot when I was a kid, or, or a fair bit, like I lived in a lot of different places. So I think I kind of went through a lot of friends as we moved and stuff. So now I really associate love with being able to um, rely and trust. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, you looked worried no, about me. No, I think it's kind of beautiful. It, yeah. Like, that's kind of what it is. Yeah. But like, yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, like it, it does beg the question then does like, do, do, does not being loved feel like dangerous? Um, it's really so. I really, I my job. I do a lot of talking to people, and I really like people, and I really like, and I genuinely think that most people are sound, and I think that, and my experience of talking to people is that most people are sound, and that um, I also think reality has a left wing bias. Like the more I talk to people, I think you don't need to pontificate about, you know, left wing ideals so much I think you can just talk to people and you realize that what everyone wants is to live in safe communities where everyone is uh, looked after and then you feel looked after because there's that kind of you know you're not living in some mad wild west designed by an ultra capitalist Um, so it's not that strangers make me feel nervous it's more that you've you've not one of the things I guess I like about talking to strangers is you don't know what's going to happen, mm. um, and with love um, and people you love, um, there's yeah. I, I what do you think when you're listening to all this? No, what, well, I have loads of questions. I have loads yeah. of thoughts. So like that that's fascinating. And but but then I'm I'm wondering so with say in, in your relationship right and you've been together for a long time yeah. and you like the element say with strangers of not knowing what's going to happen like is then the relationship like a relief from that because there's a kind of there's a, a sense of familiarity and I know what's going to happen or is there like an effort from you as a couple to like to still like to still like uh, surprise or to to yeah surprise each other in the nice ways yeah well I find Anna really funny, and mm-hmm. um, so I think um, like there's an element of delight in love too. Mm-hmm. Like, um, so she, if I come home, I look forward to what the hell she's going to be getting up to when I walk in the door, because it can be very amusing. And uh, yeah, I, I, what might something be? She'd be up to. Well, sometimes I come in and she's just dancing as a, like she pretends to be dancing as though she's been dancing all day <laughs> just at the door <laughs> um, so it's stuff like that um, so I kind of yeah and then I kind of wonder about like I, I don't like I've never been a part- I, I guess I am a bit of a risk seeker in my job in that I kind of I now like is this thing as a journalist where you um you do the thing that human nature tells you not to do. Mm. Like if someone is acting really weird or doing something bizarre, there's a bit of my brain, the normal bit of my brain that says get away. And then there's the journalist bit of my mind that says go over and talk to them. <laughs> Ask them what they're doing. And because it's always fascinating, but you never know what's going to happen. So maybe there is two sides of my personality and 
what I want from the people I love and what I appreciate is the opposite of that, you know. Um, Can you think about times when you weren't in love and what that felt like? Um... Like, I can think of times when I was lonely, and I can think of times when I was depressed. Um, and I can think of times in relationships that weren't working, but that's like a long time ago. Mm. And that's actually probably the most lonely I think people get. Mm. Um, but, yeah, like me and Anna have been together since like, for over 20 years. So, And we were friends for like, since the mid 90s mm. so it's kind of hard to remember what my brain was like before then but yeah she's probably reprogrammed me 100 percent. yeah yeah do you like and sorry uh, it's also worth saying that like all of these all of these questions and everything i asked is filtered through my own selfishness of trying to work things out through yeah. other people but like when you say look back at relationships before anna that like didn't work and now you're in a relationship for a long time that seems to really work can you Work out why? Oh, like part of it is because uh, our values are really similar, mm. but our personalities are quite different. Mm. So I know that I, I'm trying to get this out of my personality, but I'm a warrior and a brooder. Um, and, I, and Anna is quite good at getting things out of her system quickly. Right. Um, so if she... There's, there's no situation in our house where people are kind of simmering angrily at each other for ages. It's just disgust and then it's gone. And I, and I think that's because that's in Anna's personality, you know? Mm. And I think I need that in the relationship, so. Yeah, it's really funny. Like I am um, with my partner for over two years and like she's, uh, and I was always like in my 20s and I'm one of these people like who like did loads of therapy when they were young and like, you know, would consider myself to be emotionally intelligent. And I was, I was like, and I need that in yeah. a partner. Uh, and and then I met uh, Roisin and she's done none of that. Never done therapy, never done anything like that. And like for some reason for free, she just gets a degree of okayness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anna's a bit like that. Yeah. Like, I, I feel like she's probably one of the more mentally healthy people I know. Yeah. You know, and I have been to, yeah, I've been to a fair amount of therapy over the years as well. Mm. I wrote a bit about it in my book. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, so it's kind of, <laughs> so, so, so I kind of, I buy therapy. I, I think it's really important, particularly for certain kinds of people mm. um, who find it hard to straighten themselves out without a calm professional in the room. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's probably why I like doing podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> 70 euro, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we give it a spin. All right. We've got number 44. Do you have it? No. No worries. Number 44. Um, the question is, if you were time-capsuling your life with an item that best sums you up, what would the item be? <laughs> um, one thing. Yeah. Um, one thing. Like what instantly came into my head because I'm just obsessed with it at the moment is I had a yellow Lego castle when I was a child that was given to me at Christmas when I was maybe five. And I thought it was gone. And I wrote something recently that said my parents had thrown it out because they hate me. And uh, <laughs> my dad actually texted me that he'd found it and he'd built it. Um, but I don't know if the yellow... Yellow ca Lego Castle would directly say anything about me. Mm. It, uh, it maybe has some emotional 
component in it that like links me to my childhood. I don't know. Like we. I thought you might say a guitar. Yeah, except I've never like even though I played music, like I've been a musician for years, I played music in bands for years. Um, I never cared about equipment. Mm. So like I have friends who are musicians who have like beautiful 1960s Stratocasters and kind of pieces of gear that they love. And I've always been somebody that used broken gear and borrowed gear and then broke that gear <laughs> and felt guilty about it and kind of didn't. Um, I never attached the, my love of music to the specific stuff. Mm. Um, and actually, as I got older, I'm more and more interested in singing. So like I just love singing because when I was younger, I sang as a default because the band needed a singer and we were all like teenagers grinding away on guitars tunelessly. Um, so I, like I think some of the the junk the band made, I was in a band called The National Prayer Breakfast in the late 90s and it was really, and I wrote about it in my book, Okay, Let's Do Your Stupid Idea, to plug it. Um, I wrote a lot about the band and kind of what a defining thing it was for me when I was younger. Mm. In, in, in my 20s, it was like a, me and a group of like-minded friends and we were kind of influenced by punk and DIY and we just wanted to make stuff. So almost the sillier things around the band, like the, the posters we made or the, um, we made little zines, we called it, we had a hymn book with all our lyrics in it that we used to give out at gigs that we'd photocopy and reads. I think all that junk probably says more about me than the music um, because it's just we were just like magpies and we'd be just cutting and pasting things and writing and saying things and um, there was a kind of uh, kind of I'm for, it's Friday and I'm forgetting words at this <laughs> point of the week there was a kind of um, creative incontinence where we were just like we're just splashing creativity all over the place in like good, bad and indifferent stuff. And we'd almost had no editor. And I love that now in retrospect about my 20s. Like there was a period in my late 20s when I thought I'd ruined my life and I'd never have a real job and I should have been focusing and I'd failed as a band. Um, and we could, I failed as a musician. Um, and I guess maybe a lot of people have a moment, particularly creative people, where they go, have I wasted my life? Um, and I just think, no, like everything I've done since has been entirely informed by the stupid creativity of my 20s. Yeah. Um, and having friends who are really into that, too, and friends who encouraged you to just make stuff and do stuff and do gigs and embarrass yourself doing gigs before you're ready, which is also part of the process. Do you think it's possible to... That was just such a striking sentence. Like I was like, there was a period in my twenties where I was worried that I wasted my life. Do you think that's actually possible? Um, y yeah, <laughs> I think some people to make really bad decisions, yeah. you know, um, like morally bad decisions and things. Mm. Um, but I I now don't think I don't think anyone who is being true to themselves and creative is wasting anything. Mm. You know, like. People need to be uh, realistic and not entitled. So there there can be a phenomenon where people don't succeed at the thing they're trying and then they become like bitter husks that won't stop talking about it 20 years later. And that's kind of wasting your life. But that's not about what you did earlier. That's what you did afterwards. Right. Because right? um, I, 
I know loads of people from that music scene we were a part of. And there was also a kind of enabling punk rock kind of DIY thing where there wasn't really huge expectations. Like we had some huge expectations. Um, but I think if you are creative and you're being honest with that creativity, it'll always serve you. Like it'll, I definitely think it serves you better than going into a corporation at the age of 21 and spending 10 years behind a desk. Mm. And I definitely think, and apart from anything else, you can kind of reorientate at any point in your life and find something new and interesting to do. Um, so I do think that anyone listening to this who's in their 20s and 30s and thinks they've they've screwed up by spending years in clown school or whatever the hell crazy thing they wanted to do and now they've realized there's no career for circus clowns <laughs> that's fine you can become a really entertaining accountant if you like numbers now <laughs> that's my take do you when you like reflect on whether it's like your life in music or your life in writing do you see and like I'm going to use the phrase making it as like I guess a really broad way of saying like people who've maybe succeeded or made yeah. a living whatever that looks like do you see a correlation between the people who who like you thought were really good who've then gone on to have really good careers or does it appear much more random and, and you can't spot the correlation of those who've done well versus those who you thought would do well there was definitely there's definitely a phenomenon like I'm 47 now so when I was in Dublin first and I was in college and um, it's definitely the case that some of the people I thought, oh, they're going to be the big bright lights of my generation. Um, that you can't predict it because there's people who are very talented, but they then decide some like it's not. And I, I'm also really resistant to the idea of making it or not making it because mm. I, I, increasingly I just look at people who whatever the external notion of success are they doing things that make them happy? <laughs> and are they happy with the choices they've made in their life? And that's a really wide swathe of people who are happy and they've made, you know, they have good relationships with their family and they're doing a job they think is useful. And, you know, um, so so I'm kind of reluctant to go. But there were people I go, oh, he's an amazing writer or she's an amazing poet or whatever. And, and they, for whatever reason, they kind of, maybe sometimes people lost confidence. Maybe sometimes real life gets in the way um, but I also think that sometimes people just decide that that's not what they want to do mm. and sometimes the person who you thought of as the person who was slogging away kind of and they're okay but then it's also kind of amazing when you look at someone that you thought you go I thought I won't even name names here I thought they were kind of mediocre but actually 15 years later they're a brilliant writer or and it's because they just kept at it mm. like I don't uh, me and Anne actually have an argument about this all the time. I genuinely don't really believe in talent. Hmm. I think there's like curiosity and work. Mm. And if you're curious about something and you work at it, you will be perceived eventually as good at it. You know, and I and if you, you know, and I think there's theoretically there's people who have the capability to be really good, but they're not interested enough. And that's fine. Yeah. You know, that's my take. Do, do you then like so? Because I think that I, I I'm fascinated with like that. So that notion of say like pursuing your dreams or whatever, right? Yeah. But then also that like I don't know, is a tipping point or whatever where you're like, this isn't working, you know? And like I I loved the stuff that you wrote in your book about like music and like what it what it does for you now, but also when you sort of like walked away from the band, like 
doing that like did, did that at the time does that feel like a failure or that you're you're walking away from your dreams like maybe the way to frame it is like would you have a, advice for someone say in their late 20s or, or early 30s or whatever the age is who maybe is at that point of like I don't know what to do for a bit of advice that came from um, I think it's Big Magic by um, Elizabeth Gilbert Elizabeth Gilbert yeah. And actually, loads of people say this, but she says it really well. Like, just follow your curiosity mm. in life generally. I definitely had a moment when the bands, the band, kind of broke up and things hadn't really worked um, in that way. Um, where I thought I'd failed, and I was now thirty, and I didn't have a real job. And um, but I look back, and I don't see it that way. Like, I don't think. It was a waste of any time at all. Um, I, my attitude to music, a lot of things, interesting things happened, some of which I mentioned in the book. I remember going for a coffee with Paul, who was one of my closest friends, and he was the drummer in the band, like about three years after the band broke up. And we kind of were whispering about, I'm kind of glad it didn't work. Because at that point, I had realized, back to the conversation I was having earlier, that one of my favorite things to do on a Friday evening is sit down and watch the telly with Anna. And if you're in a band, you're out for like six months on tour. And that was a dream. Like, I would have loved that in my 20s. Mm. And we did touring, not at that extent, but we did kind of do like weeks on the road in Britain and here. Um, but that thing that you love in your 20s isn't necessarily what you want in your 30s. So sometimes the dreams you had aren't necessarily the dreams that are going to suit you later on. So mm -hmm. it's it's actually okay sometimes that they didn't work. And then the other thing is I learned, I got a much better, like I love singing and I love playing music with Anna and Anna's sister Lisa and other friends um, just for fun. Um, and we do a singing weekend thing every year. We go over to the north of England with a band called The Unthanks and they teach singing and it's brilliant and fun. And I kind of realized that I re-engaged with music in a way, I won't say it's purer, but I re-engaged in music that didn't have the baggage of having to make a living off it, you know. So you get something, you still have something from that experience. There's actually another great thing that Elizabeth Gilbert said that I think I quote or paraphrase in the book um, is sometimes you don't get what you want, but you get something else. Mm -hmm. And the something else is really good too. So I don't, I think if you, if someone honestly made a go at something, and it doesn't quite work out the way you want. If you honestly made a go at it, you got something from that. That's my take. And you, and if you don't focus on it being a winning or losing thing, you can take what you got and you go, I did loads of really cool creative things and it's changed my brain a bit and I can use the way my brain is now changed to do other things. Yeah. You know. I love that. Okay. Let's give it a spin. All right, here we go. Number 20. Not yeah. on my card here. Not on your card. No worries. Number 20. Huh. Have you ever had a near-death experience? Kind of, yeah. Um, I, I think I'm. we did a lot of late-night driving um, when we were in the band. We had, we uh, at one point we used to drive around in hatchbacks because um, that's what we had, like filled with gear and people. Um, and at one point, Paul went over to Germany and bought a camper van and we did about a year of touring with this slightly rickety but amazing camper van because it was like his living room on the road. Um, and because I drove, 
as well, I'd sit up the front. Paul used to drive that, but I'd sit up the front and make sure he didn't fall asleep. And one night uh, on the road back from Galway, I think, um, I woke up in the passenger seat to look over to see Paul asleep. <laughs> and I had to scream. <laughs> and my job was to keep him awake, so it was my fault. And I kind of realized the whole van was asleep. Now, he obviously had only just dozed off or we'd have already been dead. Um, so, yeah, to anyone out there doing gigs, be really careful. Stop and drink coffee and mix up the driving. Yeah. I have another friend in another band who, who did wake up upside down in a ditch after. Now, he was fine. He didn't, wasn't badly hurt. Mm. And again, it was coming back from a late night gig that he was playing. So, it, it, it's, an, it's an interesting question as well, because I used to have it on my list. And then I was like, I'm not sure like that's an OK question to ask people. Like, do you do you have that in your journalistic stuff? Because like, I, I think it's just a human thing that sometimes you're like, I really want to know that about people, but also you don't want to like, you know, re-traumatize someone or like, you know, put someone in an uncomfortable. Yeah. Do, do you ha do you have that filter? Because obviously, like these are like pre-written questions, and it's fine, uh, and like there's an understanding of like. But when you go up to someone on the street, say like, do you have that thing of like, I want to know, but I'm not sure I can ask. Um, I tend to err on the side of asking, but I'm not as like I'm, I'm not as cold-blooded as I was when I was a younger journalist and I think part of that younger when I was in my 30s early 30s and part of that is um, uh, Stuart Lee has a book about uh, I can't remember what it's called but it's a collection of some of his shows that's heavily footnoted mm -hmm. and the best bits are the footnotes right. actually and because actually some pages there's only four lines and then there's a massive footnote <laughs> yeah. it's like a little essay and, and there's really interesting observations about humour and things in it this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's connected. Um, and there's one bit where he, there's a joke at the expense of another comedian. And in the footnote, he starts discussing how at a certain point in his career, people stopped laughing and he figured out what it was. It was that when he started telling that joke first, he was way less successful than that comedian. Hmm. So it was kind of kicking up at like a guy that was bigger than him and when the things changed, he realized he'd kind of passed the comedian out and now it looked like he was bullying the guy. Yeah. And there's a definite thing when I was, I wouldn't have done it with or like regular people, but if I was interviewing somebody well known, I'd be a little, not balshy or mean, but it would be a little bit like I'm speaking truth to power and I've got to like, I've got to ask these hard questions. And now I'm a 47 year old with a staff job in the Irish Times and, and it doesn't feel like I'm a powerless person against a powerful person anymore. It feels like, you know, it feels a bit, there are certain questions I wouldn't ask now for the reasons you've said that I honestly think some things aren't my business. Mm. And then there are times like I'll have a difficult question to ask because it's to do with, um, you know, something they've done wrong or something they don't want to talk about, you know, where it is your job as a journalist to go. And, and that's a really careful dance and negotiation. And usually, I wrote a bit about interviewing in the book as well. Um, there's a point in an interview where everyone kind of warms up and it becomes a proper conversation. And if an interview is working, you forget that it's like an interview. Mm. And that's usually at the point when you can ask something more difficult. Mm. Um, but I still don't like salacious questions. I like I don't. Um, I don't like that thing where you ask the person that people think is a, is closeted 
are they gay? Mm. You know, because that's none of our business. I do think it's fair to ask people questions about hypocrisy or, you know, and that can be difficult. Like I've done interviews where the temperature has changed in the room and I've gone like, I've gone, oh, God, I've just asked the question and they don't like it. Um, but, yeah, you kind of have to live with that. It's part of your job. Yeah. Do you have to have a because in that moment right and you ask a question and you can just see by, by body language or the silence I leave I'm like I wish you didn't ask that or I don't approve <laughs> of you asking that what, what's happening in like are you dying inside or are you really observing the moment so you can write about the moment of it later or, or there's a bit of that there's a bunch of things going on at the same time like I said earlier uh, there's a thing sometimes where as a journalist, you're attracted to the stuff on fire. And as a human, you're going, don't go near the fire. Yeah. <laughs> and that that is often going on. Like, I, like, I've had moments where I won't go into the details of it, but I remember I had something to ask Louis Thoreau and I interviewed him about something in the book that in his memoir that kind of struck me really weirdly. And you, I did have to do like, the temperature does feel like it's changing in the room mm-hmm. and you do your brain is going, um, uh, this might be good copy, but I want to be home in bed. <laughs> you know, like you've got this fight. I have a fight in my head. Maybe, hopefully that means I'm not a sociopath. I think maybe if I was a sociopath, I would just enjoy those moments. Mm. You know? and, and what about then if you, like if you instinctively like someone, so just say you really yeah. like Louis through, but you're like, but I, I did this jump for me and I, I need to name it. Like, do, do you have to fight that versus when someone... I don't know someone might be a perfectly decent person, but for whatever reason, they just sort of rub you the wrong way. Like, but I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, because uh, my next question was going to be like, do you think you have the best job in the Irish Times? Because like, <laughs> I think it might be. But what I was really wanted to say was like, do, are you allowed to let that, because of the style of writing, are you allowed to let that colour it and that's just part of it? Or do you still feel that kind of like objectivity that like I would associate with, with journalists? I feel objective. I feel a responsibility to the reader and a responsibility to the person you're interviewing. And they're both, they can both slightly be in conflict, Mm. but you have to think about both. Um, I don't feel it's my job to catch people out. There's a certain kind of interview I don't like where somebody clearly didn't ask the hard question and then writes about it anyway. (laughs) And then there's another type of interview I don't like where somebody has a, a good faith conversation with somebody and then goes, uh, there was one in recent years that went viral with Krista Berg and I just thought it was a bit mean because the person had gone away and did this piece where they just take the piss out of Krista Berg. And I was like, going, I don't think that's what Krista Berg thought was happening. So that's why I don't think it's fair. Yeah. So I think you need to, when I'm interviewing people, whether it's a bunch of people about like an event or um, a movement or a or protest or something, or whether it's, um, a famous-ish person about a book or a film. Um, uh, I still think I have a responsibility to put their best foot forward, mm. to present what they are trying to say and not to try and catch them out and to present in the clearest, best possible light what their perspective is. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean that you don't some, don't sometimes disagree with people. Um, and, and But then you, the other thing I don't like 
that I sometimes see is where the interviewer gets to have the last word because they're writing the piece. <laughs> you know, like I told them. Um, so like I try to present that as realistically as possible. Like I've, I have written, you know, they said this, I kind of disagreed. We kind of left it, <laughs> you know, or um, like I do think there's a responsibility. And the reason you have to ask sometimes the hard question is because of the responsibility to the reader. Mm. Right. Which is so there's hope I'm not rambling. <laughs> no, no, no. This is I, like this is the yeah. this is all the stuff. Like the, we we only see the end product, but I'm yeah. I'd be really I'm curious as to like how you get there because like that's kind of a an editorial process and two like lenses yeah. one in the writing process but also in the interview process. Yeah. And how that all filters into what we read in the paper. And the other thing I do, and I, I wrote about this in the book of a of an essay called "Talking to Strangers" in the book. Like I really prep for interviews so I I do lists of questions over and over again and I redo them and you're almost trying to it never works out like this but mm. you're always trying to kind of almost pre-write the order like what you imagine the conversation will go like but I do it to the extent that when I eventually meet the person it's like embedded in my head and I don't even have to look at mm. the page um, because in the interaction then I think for a good interview, it needs to be a real interaction mm. and it needs to not be predictable and and it needs and it needs not to be like all the other interviews with the person. I, you know, you ca it's a tall order. You can't always do that, you know, depending on who, how many people have interviewed the person. Yeah, 100 percent. I think about that sometimes with this podcast, because like I would be aware of my like speech patterns and yeah. kind of maybe being a bit all over the place. But like that's genuinely kind of how I am in the world. Me too. Yeah. And I, but but and sometimes I'm like, well, maybe I should be a bit more clipped and use my radio voice and speak in complete sentences. But I also feel like that would give the conversations a real interview feel, which then I think would lose some of the intimacy or the places that you get. You know, so yeah. as as the interviewer, sometimes you've got to be willing almost to be like not not the fall guy, but you know mm. what I mean. That you're 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 not trying to you shouldn't be trying to make yourself look good. Yeah, totally. And th and then the other thing is, if an interview is going well, if the interview is going really well, you will end up somewhere you never expected. Mm. So there's that great thing that happens where you just do not expect the story they tell you, or um, and actually that's really particularly fascinating with. Um, when I'm out at like interviewing people on the street kind of randomly for things like people have amazing stories and everyone um, if you talk to someone long enough, not that you can always do this in my job, but they always say something surprising mm. because I just don't believe there's any stock characters out there. Like everyone is a mad collection of like history and impulses and crazy experiences, mm. you know, anyone over the age of. 10 I think has just had crazy experiences yeah yeah let's try find some more of yours <laughs> alright um, where are we number 12 do you have it no no worries number 12 deep deep down what do you think motivates you uh, <laughs> like I, I, I'd like to say like curiosity and creativity but um I think deep, deep down, I want everyone in the world to love me. <laughs> so I kind of so there's a dangerous motivation down there, which isn't productive or helpful, mm. um, and that I have to kind of, um, which I think possibly a lot of people who do 
any sort of public thing have a bit of, mm-hmm. you know, but uh, you definitely have to throw that out the window or you just become a completely universal generalist with nothing interesting to say. Yeah. Where do you think that, like, need or want comes from? I think it was, again, moving around when I was a kid, you know. Um, I think I was qu- I was quite lonely as a kid at different points when we moved. And I think it's part of the reason I love the band. Mm. Um, and I love being in bands. Uh, I, I think I have a line in the book about how the best thing about being in a band is that your friends are all forced to be with you in the car. <laughs> <laughs> you know, something like that. So there was, like, something about a band that made... Um, that made your friendships, that formalized your friendships. I guess it was like being in an army during a war. Um, like, so I, I definitely have like that slightly dangerous thing motivating me. Mm. I um, I think like as I get older, I think in almost everything, the that thing about following your curiosity is really good for people. And, I'm, and I think I was always kind of a curious person but I think I'm trying to apply it now to more elements of my life. Mm. You know, not like I think I was always curious creatively, but I think it's also good to be curious in your relationships and your interactions with strangers for no good reason. Mm. You know, rather than I'm writing an article, I've I've actually found that I think probably being a journalist kind of has made me a little nosier. I don't think being nosy is always a bad thing. I couldn't agree <laughs> more. But but and I think as well it depends on the spirit of your nosiness because yeah. I, I think like people can smell that if if you're like if you're being nosy to gossip or you're being nosy to make the snide remark where yeah. if you're being nosy because you probably will have then 10 follow-up questions of more yeah. curiosity like people really like that yeah that's funny like i was i never gossiped when i was young. like i don't gossip and actually friends used to get annoyed with me because i was almost like on this moral high ground and then as I've got older I, this is going to sound completely dysfunctional I've started realising oh my god they need me to gossip so now I do some gossip for them The mm. <laughs> gossip is a weird thing because I do think it can veer close to bullying a lot which is why I hated it when I was younger mm-hmm. and I still kind of hate it but also I think it's like a weird bonding experience for some people completely and also like I think if you've got like I'm speaking I'm relating to a lot of what you're saying so like I think that as well if you're someone who wants to be liked and then you've got someone in your life who like bonds with people and finds community through like gossip or like pulling other people down there's a weird tension where it's like I don't want to put that negativity in the world but also I want to I want I want you to like me I want this to go well and you're in this weird tug of war yeah no I don't I don't I kind of hate that form of gossip um, I don't like the the gossip I've learned to appreciate as a as a kind of social lubricant um, is just did you hear what he did? <laughs> That's stuff I can. Yeah. I know. In the past, I was almost too high minded. I'd be going, I will not talk about him. He is not in the room. And now, <laughs> now I'm like, no, actually, there's no harm in going. Yeah, he's a bit mad like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but I do like. Uh, but the interesting thing is like that thing where I'm nosy about people, I, I'm, I never break people's confidence and mm-hmm. I never like I, I do think it's really important if somebody goes, please don't tell anyone else to just genuinely don't tell anyone else. And I'm I'm really careful in interviews 
um, when I'm interviewing people, like really seasoned professionals go, this is off the record. But I check with people who are not seasoned professionals. Sometimes people say things to me and I go, are you sure you're OK with me putting that in the piece? And because people don't realize sometimes like people don't understand what the rules of journalism are. So there's a kind of hardcore hard-boiled journalist that goes, no, you have to say, this is off the record. Mm. I actually think with more vulnerable people, or not even vulnerable people, just people who are not professional communicators, you have to check sometimes, mm. is this off the record? So then, you know that piece about like wanting to be liked or wanting to be loved? Yeah. D- d- does that get in the way of your life? I, I think I'm, I, I don't think I'm as ba- bad with that. That's like, when you're asked like deep down what was motivating me yeah. I think that's deep down I, I am pretty good at uh, standing my ground and saying things that are difficult for people to hear mm. um, when it's appropriate now it's di- like like there are times you just have to do that thing that makes you unpopular mm. um, and a bit of the child version of me dies because it just wants people he just wants to make friends with everyone but um but in an ideal world, I'd do that and everyone would still love me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you can you um, can you recognize that moment of transition from when that like saying the thing that would make you unpopular was too scary or too much to when it became palatable to do it? Um, I think I always had a tendency to do it, but I think then there was a like there's that period in teenage years where um, you just become a bit of a dick and you just, <laughs> <Yeah>. just <laughs> um, and like I remember being quite good at defending people when I was a kid mm. and then something happened in which not I was, I was never a bully but like I, I did shut up about things I should have said something about mm. you know like kind of when in hor- just horrible school behavior mm-hmm. stuff. Um, in the last few years I back to what I was saying about kind of own like when I was a younger journalist and I was kicking up think I was thought I was kicking up there's there's also a point in I think everyone's life where you got to realize oh yeah I'm the adult I'm an adult in the room Mm -hmm. you know it's not always other people's responsibility when you're younger you can always go the 40 year old he'll do it (laughs) you know Um, and then at a certain point you go actually I'm a middle-aged man Um, I need to take responsibility for things and I need to be the person who says things Um, so there's more of a kind of uh, I think people need to own their own power, mm. you know, um, and I think a, a lot of people do that, but a lot of people don't. A lot of people think the whole world is victimizing them and that um, it's not their responsibility to ever be the person who makes a stand. Yeah. And and I think that's a really hard mindset to like illuminate for someone. Like, I'm yeah. sure we all have people in our in our lives that are a little bit like that, but that, that's a a really specific worldview and it's obviously doing something for them. Yeah. Like it's obviously It's protective. It's protective. Yeah. And so it's very difficult to yank that from someone you love, even though you can see it's a destructive yeah. influence in their life. Yeah. Like I I do think that I mean I think in recent years there's been a lot of people have learned a lot about like privilege and things that they never really thought about before um and weren't made to think about before. Um, and I think intersectionality, that idea that, you know, there's loads of different. I mean, I'm a white, straight, middle aged 
middle-class man. So I like tick all the boxes of privilege, but there are lots of different forms of privilege and it's really important for people to kind of know when they are in a position of power and when they're not, mm. you know, and I think that's the, so there, it's like everyone's got these check boxes in their head, one going, I want everyone to love me, another going, well, I have certain responsibilities, and another going, what are other people doing, and how should I support them, or are they right and wrong, and you're constantly kind of balancing all these things yeah. in your head. Do you, where, that, that point of being like a straight white middle-aged man, right? And you know the way when you write about kind of anything, but especially like the the personal stuff or like, I, I guess what I'm really asking is, because uh, I deal with like the same thing in lots yeah. of ways. like and, I, and sometimes, especially in like early drafts of a thing or if I'm doing a show or, or something like that and I want to, I want to put a flag on that because I want to, own that and I want to say with the caveat of like I know that pretty much everyone has it harder than me but also whenever I do that I'm like well that's shit writing like it's it's, it's boring I wrote an essay I didn't use in the book and I'm glad I didn't use it and it was that red it was that putting a flag in a thing right it was like me and then I went oh my god it's just in a way it's kind of special pleading or something yeah Um, I think that like it's interesting because in media like there it's not diverse enough like it's just obviously not diverse enough it, there isn't enough people enough people of cap- color there aren't enough women in higher levels so there is a kind of thing where um you know people like me need to kind of just step back sometimes and give people the room mm. um but there's also like in until the point when um newsrooms are more diverse um there's also responsibility to kind of interview people and present their perspectives and present marginalized communities so i i, lo- I like doing that at the moment or i hope to do more of that mm. what the that idea of say not using that essay in the book or just generally yeah. not using stuff in the book like what was what what's in the is it like fourteen essays in the book? Something like that. Yeah. A- and how many essays did you write with the book in mind? I probably wrote maybe four other ones that I didn't use. Mm. Um, some just didn't fit, and some just didn't work. Mm. And then so there, like it's kind of interesting because some of those essays um, came out almost straight, and then they were edited and stuff. Like they were just effortless to write and then others were like really difficult it took ages and I kept redrafting them and my editor kept wanting me to redraft some of them and um, I'm not sure you could tell one from the other now Neil Gaiman you know the writer the fantasy writer who wrote Sandman and stuff I I listened to a master class he did and he said something really heartening which is um, for writers is that some days you get up and it's a joy and it's you know you write for three hours and everything feels beautiful and then other days you get up and it's a complete slog and every word is like pulling a tooth um and he says the heartening thing is when i look back on those pages years later i can't tell which or which um because i always had this fear that unless something was like a joy to write it was actually going to be horrible (laughs) you know because some things you know yourself like some things you write it does feel like you're literally thinking about every word because it's just coming so slow and and i always had a fear that those pieces were awful Mm -hmm. um but in the context of the book i found that 
some of those pieces are the ones people love most so hmm. do, do you think you'll write another book like okay let's do your stupid idea I, I th i'm thinking now i might after i'd written it i was like no way because i just felt like i told all the stories mm. and and they'd been in my day job as a writer i write about other people's lives and i write like columns about tally and you know where i'm taking the piss out of pop culture um so when i started writing those essays first i just realized i had so much material and i had so much to say because i'd never touched it before but then when it was finished i actually felt like i've written about everything nothing else has happened to me yeah. um but three years two and a half years later i do feel um actually there's other things i can write about and i've started writing some more essays now so mm. maybe another book like that I, i'm not sure mm. it, like for someone like me who who would like to write in that space uh, at some point do you have a uh, advice that you got that served you or advice that you've just lived that you could give um so like one bit of self-protection advice um, I hear Emily Pine giving it a lot as well when we do events together is write anything you feel like writing but think a lot about what you're actually going to show other people and publish you mm. know so there's there is a kind of weird thing in the space of personal essays where I sometimes feel like there are some unscrupulous editors who want quite vulnerable young writers to write about the most painful things that ever happened to them. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that is fair to those writers. And I, one of the things I loved about Emily's book, Notes to Self, is she wrote about some very difficult things that happened to her. But as a reader, I felt safe. Back mm -hmm. to safety again. But like as a reader, I felt like that, I felt she was okay. And I felt like the perspective she was writing from was the perspective of an older person who had gone through it and was now all right. Um, whereas sometimes I read personal essays by people and I feel worried for them, mm. you know, and I, I and I go, was it ethical for the editor to put this out there, you know? So that's on a very, that's on the more self-protective thing. On the practical thing is once you start digging at a memory, it's amazing what comes out. Mm. Like, so if there's a really compelling scene in your head from your past that you know you got that was a really funny or really weird and moving or really it's always worth sitting down to try and write that out because as you write it you might think it's just that scene but i found what was amazing is it was like it dislodged other memories on the shelf mm. so as i wrote that scene i'd start going why was i there that day and then you suddenly remember another crazy bit of the story from earlier and and all this other stuff will come out so i think sometimes people think they need to have the shape of everything in their head before they start. The amazing thing about the essay as a form is you can decide to shape yourself structurally because you can do all sorts of things in essays. Um, but also, it's kind of exploratory. Like, it's not an opinion piece where you go, I am now going to explain what housing policy should look like because I know. Uh, with essays, you're often going, I'm now going to write a lot of the stuff I feel about cars because I don't really know what it amounts to. And now I'm going to find out. And there's a kind of, I think the great thing about the essay is it starts with a bit of a personal question mark, mm. you know? Mm. Yeah. Do, is that what you feel like most of those essays are doing? Are, are you trying to, are you trying to work something out? 
Yeah, so there's there's a there's a few different types of essays in the book. I don't know if they're obvious as types, but in my mm. head, there's like there's a couple. Like there's one about um, a dissolute summer I spent in Germany, which is called Gigantic after the Pixies song. Like that was a joy to write, but that was just I have loads of stories that when I have a few drinks in me, I end up telling about that summer in Germany. Let's just put it all down on the page, mm. and that was literally I just want to make people laugh. There's some kind of little moving things in it, but. Um, there's a few stories like that or a few essays like that and then some of the others like I love singing so I want and I knew I felt a lot of things about singing and had thoughts but I didn't know what it added up to so I decided I'd write about singing mm. um, I do loads of driving and all for my job driving around reporting and also when I was younger in the band we did lots of driving so I have lots of thoughts about driving so there's an essay about driving and and it, and it's basically starts with me just remembering things, writing stuff up, then going in some cases thinking something completely different and mm. on the same subject and writing it up and then just trying to blend it all together, you know, um, and you're working out what you think. And like I know driving, for example, is kind of weirdly core to my existence because of how much of it I've done, but I'd never kind of worked it all out before, you mm. know. Um, and the essay, like I said, it's just a great space for doing that. Was there any essay in it that you wrote and then didn't or almost didn't put in because you were you were scared of it? Um, by the time like it was all written and there, like nothing in that book is undigested grief or anything you know mm. like it's all stuff I, I was okay with um, th there was some things I didn't know I felt about when I started writing the essay you know um, like the one on mental health it's called brain fever and there's one about I did some I was a care worker for a little while um, and in each case essay. Thanks, the care yeah. worker is beautiful yeah, I, I, and that was really difficult to get right. Mm. Like that took me ages to get right. But again, I was trying to get my, I felt all these unresolved thoughts about that because it's a really complicated job. I was looking after intellectually disabled uh, and physically disabled young people um, for maybe a year and a half, two years, at kind of around the time the bands were ending and before I established myself as a journalist. And... It, I definitely changed my life in some ways and changed the way I thought about the world. And, it, and I just and it also made me feel uncomfortable in some ways because caring is a really morally complex kind of thing. Um, and so when I started writing that, I was kind of trying to work things out. So I was just writing stuff that happened. And then as I was writing things that happened, I was trying to figure out what I felt about that now. Mm. Um, yeah, so that that's one of my favourite essays in the book too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. All right, let's give it a spin. Okay, we have number 39. Do you have that one? No, I'm not getting any questions for you. That's okay. Yeah. You're giving great answers though. Uh, number 39, what's one thing everyone likes that you don't like? <laughs> There's loads of things. I love this actually. I, um, I, I find it almost recreational uh, <laughs> because I get so angry about... Like, I get so angry about things that everyone loves and I think is bad. Yeah. 
you know and I think that's why arts like some people take that really personally but I think that's the joy of art is your friend goes I really like this and you go that is the worst song I have ever like but the, the first season of so True Detective I remember getting really annoyed that everyone liked True Detective because everyone was going oh the second season's not great but the first season the masterpiece and I just thought True Detective was just bizarre unstructured waffling that was gritty for grittiness sake yeah. and I thought that your man Rust Cole I'm, go, I'm giving out about it now I thought that Rust Cole's character the, that character was like it's like your stoner roommate from when you're in college and he just won't everyone's going he's so clever and wise I'm like oh, he's not clever and wise he's got like a little book of philosophy and he's high um, but anyway so things like that La La Land I hated La La Land Huh. Because, uh, so I'm just going to rant about things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, because I really like a lot of the old school musicals with like Gene Kelly, like mm. an American in Paris and things. But he was an amazing dancer. They get a bunch of actors who are not dancers. They teach them to dance to the extent that you go, you know, it's like a dog and unicycle. You're going, so it's amazing they successfully didn't kill themselves doing that. And then you say it's an amazing musical, harking back to the glory days of... It's like teaching somebody jazz piano and then going, they're like a jazz classic. It's not the same. <laughs> so, so there's lots of things like that. Yeah. <laughs> it is like, but that... Like but that's a, fun. Yeah. It's, yeah, like I... Like I I genuinely like think part of the joy about art is part of the reason I still like do a critical comic, critical in inverted commas, Kanye Montelli is because part of the joy of art is the talking about art. Mm. You know, the disagreement when you see a film is part of the joy. Going to the pub afterwards and your friend going, I hated that. And you're going, oh, I just thought it was amazing. And having that discussion is part of the process of having art in the world. Yeah, is there one thing that everyone hates that you really like? Um, it's probably loads of things. Like, I love... Um, I, I wrote a, an essay for the Irish Times uh, a couple of years ago. about. I realised that my favourite thing when I was... And I think it was a big thing when I was a teenager, but it's still my favourite thing, is art that's better than it ought to be. Mm. You know, like... Um, when I was in my teens, 2000 AD was meant to be a kids comic. And it had these amazing stories. It was written by a bunch of anarchists who'd somehow got the job of running this kids comic. And they were writing these amazing stories, but it was only meant to be a kids comic. Uh. So it was kind of, you know, it's respected in retrospect now. Um, Smash Hits, the pop magazine, was the funniest thing you could read in the late 80s, you know really good writers and they're writing about pop music and it's kind of so I love things that are slightly uh, sneered at looked down upon like Buffy the Vampire Slayer mm. right is a show that was meant to be just a kind of teen drama you know not meant to be and it ends up kind of rewriting how people do telly afterwards so I love that moment when something that's only meant to be like another teen drama or a pop song is actually the best thing that came out that year. You Great. Know? I love that. Okay, let's give it a spin. Um, we have number 43. Do you have it? No. 
No worries. You're getting lots of ones adjacent. I have 42. Yeah, we're just teasing. Um, number 43. What period of time was the most exciting of your life? Um, huge pause. Um, I'm not... I'm not sure because like when I was a kid kind of moving around was slightly exciting but not always in a good way. Mm. We didn't move we just I lived in seven different houses when I was a kid which is a fair amount. Oh, of that's living. a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So um so that was kind of exciting and then being in the band like I loved like I said having all my friends trapped in a car with me driving around England and things. Mm. Um, that was exciting. That was fun. Rolling into a town trying to find the venue and the promoter and wondering if there'd be more than five people at the gig. And like, I, I kind of loved that stuff. There's always kind of exciting things going on. And this is back, I think, to the safety thing mm. I was saying earlier. Like, excitement is fine when you have somewhere safe to retreat to. Um, and so my life is in a lot of ways, I'm a very, um, I was prematurely middle-aged. Like I do like a car, I'm wearing a cardigan. Um, I, I do like really boring things like walks in the park. And, but I also like, like, I mean, I just before the first lockdown uh, in January, 2020, it was the official night they left the EU in Britain and they sent me over to kind of interview people and talk to people. And I was outside the parliament in London and there were scary fascists floating around. Like not everyone there, like there's a lot of kind of, there was a Farage thing and there was a Tommy Robinson thing. Mm. And Tommy Robinson's people were kind of scary. And there's people coming up to me and threatening me because I was a journalist and there was all this strange stuff. And, but part of me is like, like part of me is like, I want to be at home watching I don't know, watching telly. Um, but another part of me is going, this is kind of exciting and fun. And then you have to, w so in my job, like then you have to run off and find a space outside to write, write up an article to send to people. So there's the excitement of the deadline. There's the excitement of talking to sometimes scary people. Um, and it's weirdly enjoyable. Mm. Um, I was over at, um, uh, I was at, COP26 last year in Edinburgh and I went out on a, a march to write about it and it was kettle, they were kettled by the police and I was in the middle of it and you're kind of in the middle of it part of you is going I don't want to be kettled by the police but the other part of you is going this is great copy <laughs> I've been kettled <laughs> and it is exciting so so there's oh, like th there have been all these exciting bits in my life um, but they're always cosseted in a very stable, boring uh, domestic life that I love. Mm. I was going to ask, like, what does this period of your life feel like? It's kind of exciting because um, I'm very glad that I'm still doing creative, fun things. And I kind of, and I'm increasingly, one of the things that's exciting to me is kind of another thing I touched upon earlier is I don't think I really care about success anymore. I just like the opportunity to make stuff. Mm. So I love the fact that my job facilitates me to do things I enjoy. And I'm, you know, I'm doing some other creative projects. I'm doing some script writing with my brother. And I like the idea that I'd love the idea that I can just keep making things. Mm. And that is exciting. And I wasn't sure 
when I was a bit younger if people did that as they got older. I know they do, but um, but I, I, I'm kind of really excited by the idea that it's not the case anymore that everyone has to have the same life, that people can, like, we don't have kids. Mm. Um, and I wrote about that in the book, too. But um, and that was, in, you know, that was complex for us and complex for me. Um, but one of the things I kind of find quite heartening and exciting about this point in our lives now is you realize, you know, the future's kind of wide open. You know, there's different ways to live. There's more ways to live than ever in the in like a safe Western city. Mm. Um, and hopefully that continues. And there are so many ways you can live a good and interesting life. Mm. Yeah. Can, actually, can I ask you about that? And we don't have to put any of this in, but I, it's funny. I always knew I did loads of this podcast before and this is like a season two of it. Yeah. And you're one of the people that I probably like discovered in that like interim. And I knew that I wanted to have you on the podcast. And I think one of the questions that used to be on the sheet was something along the lines of like becoming a parent or like yeah. parenthood and exploring that. And and I, I don't know anything about your story or that, but I was, again, kind of similar to the near death thing. I was like, hmm, is that like, is that like a fair question to ask people when it's obviously something that so many people have really complex relationships yeah. to? Like, can <laughs> what do you think like what what like how would you feel if I 48 comes out and I ask like what's your relationship to becoming a parent is that I, cool I, li- I like talking about that and I think it's interesting and I have friends like Emily Pine who has written about that too and I think it's it's a good discussion for people to have in the context of acknowledging there's loads of different ways that people live their lives and mm-hmm. some of it is with kids some of it's without kids, sometimes by choice, sometimes not by choice, sometimes not by choice, and then people are okay with it. And sometimes people really struggle. So I think it would be a difficult question for some people. So I think it's good that it's not on the sheet, but it's a, it's not a question that's difficult for me now. Um, when I wrote the essay in the book, which is about the complex feelings I had then, I think I was kind of exercising my last demons on the subject. Um, I think... I think we feel now that we're quite happy with our life and that and my taking it I did a podcast that somebody asked me to do a podcast that was specifically themed on this and I was kind of talking she was uh, talking to her afterwards she's a psychotherapist and she was saying that um the gist of it I think my, my perspective I think is that mo- a huge deal is made about parenthood and having kids and it's a, and it is genuinely very difficult for some people who can't but there's also a lot more ways you can live a full life than just being you know a classic nuclear family and we live in a world where everything should be more open and there should be more ways to live and it should be discussed more that you know I think women in particular feel under pre- um, under pressure <laughs> to to have kids and also to feel like they want kids and I've had conversations with a lot of people at this stage because of the piece in my book where they've gone, yeah, it's just there's way more different views out there than are presented. You know, there's always everyone either wants kids or there's the tragedy of not having kids mm. or there is uh, bitter loners who hate children, you know. And th- the reality is I freaking love children and I've loads of nephews and a niece and, I, um, and kids are freaking amazing. Yeah. But you can have good relationships with your nephews, nieces, godchildren and, you know. Yeah, I, like, because I, it, it, it's something that I'm pretty sure, like, I want to do in yeah. my in my life. And and it's funny because I think, I, I, 
yeah like and it's something that if I think about or talk about I get emotional about the idea yeah. of it um and also I think in the last few years like but I don't really know any kids you know and in the last <laughs> in the last few years like I have like uh, Rosie my partner she's uh she's the youngest of three so she's got two yeah. uh, she got her older sister has two kids and so like now I'm in in their like life and, and I kind of but like the, the reality of it all and like and and like some of my friends are starting well I have one friend yeah. who's like had a baby in the last six months and uh and like we we babysat and and I was like oh I'm I'm actually like I'm not good at this yet because of course I'm not you know oh, yeah. um but it it's like it's a it's a funny thing because I, I don't know I think I have it in my head like well I'll, I'll be I'll be a, a great dad and and I'm sure I I I hopefully will be but yeah. like but also I think. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know, I, and and also then all the like, I'm like, I'll be, I'll be, a, I think I'll be a good dad in like atypical ways because I'm not good at dad stuff, you know, like yeah. dad stuff. I I say like like flat pack furniture. That's what I'm talking about, you yeah. you know. And I don't think anyone under the age of like sixty. I think all men have lost those skills. <laughs> um, I like I think it's a really interesting subject because one of the things that occurred to me when I was writing that essay, but also kind of just generally thinking about it, is there's a lot of things people do without thinking, mm-hmm. you know. So I think, and, and people listening to this, I'm not saying you who is listening <laughs> out there, like a lot of people do things very deliberately and all the rest, but I think there is a thing where if you, like uh, like I did, if, if, if you hit your 40s and it, it's looking like you're not going to have kids, and, and a lot of your friends do. Um, in one way, it's very daunting. In another way, um, it's kind of really interesting because th- th- it's another way of living. And um, I don't necessarily think everyone who has kids thinks it through either. I think there's a kind of thing where, you know, this is what you do next. And then they find themselves going, wow, having kids is really hard. <laughs> Because yeah. it is, I do a lot of babysitting, and I kind of leave going, "Yeah, you know, I do value sleeping in." <laughs> Completely, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. It's just, yeah, it's it's really it's really funny. But like one of the things as well, as I get older, I think like I really see is like just those like things that like we need to focus on and whether it's like that thing of like you know someone in a family is getting married so everyone focuses on the wedding you know what I mean and like these things that we've like designed like societally like because traditionally that's what you did you got married and you had a house and you had a baby and these things and it's like everyone focuses on the the thing and then they'll focus on the next thing and they'll focus on the next one and like and and then it's just it's funny like that's I don't know. I I guess I I see it, and I'm like, I don't know what we do without that. Because for there's cer- certain people in in like my life or who I've been exposed to recently, I'm like, that is that is their their thing. That's their currency. Like they they deal in in life events, and, yeah. And like the, the in between is actually just preparation for the next life event. I really like the in between, and mm. I think that's and and there's, um. Yeah, I, I, th- I mean, I think it all boils down to is there's a lot of different ways you can live your life. And, and that Elizabeth Gilbert quote I quoted earlier is peop- you don't always get what you want, but you get someone else. Mm. You get something else. And she was actually specifically talking about kids because oh. she didn't have kids. Um, and she actually, Anna interviewed her at a big event in Dublin a few years ago. And she was kind of amazing about how she had this line, it's largely female audience, largely middle-aged female audience. Um, she's a 
and she's an amazing speaker. Mm. And she talked about how she now thinks of um, women without children in middle age as a new species. Like, and she's just, and she was this kind of rah rah look at where you know there's a whole new possibility for you know. And her thing is, I think she would have wanted to have kids and didn't, but she's okay. Yeah. And she has, you know, she has found other things to put meaning into and to believe in. And she has other relationships. And um, I found it really inspiring. She's and phenomenal. Yeah. Everything I've ever read or seen of her has been phenomenal. Her, her book on creativity is really good. Yeah. Uh, Big Magic and recommend it to anyone listening. Completely. Yeah. We have time for one more? Yeah. We do it. All right. Here we go. It is number I don't think you have it. It's number 14. I don't have it. Oh, it's a whitewash. <laughs> but do you know yeah. what? That's a good sign because it means the chats were so good we didn't need to spin too yeah. often. The final question. Um, oh, this is an interesting one. This is a new question. I don't think I've asked this yet. What have you learned about being a son? Oh. <laughs> I'm not... I'm, I'm not sure. There's definitely a thing that happens in your life for the the relationship dynamic changes with your parents. Mm. So both my parents are still alive. They're in their early 70s. Um, my mom has had cancer for 15 years. Then she's been lucky with treatments mm. and not lucky, but um, she's treatments have worked. Um, and I think a big turning point in, a, in my relationship with my folks was when she was diagnosed in her 50s mm. and it does kind of shift the dynamic because before then before then it was all about me <laughs> and after that you go oh it's a family and you've mutual responsibilities um and that was the f i guess the first time I, I think i was in my i think i was in my late 20s early 30s and i kind of went okay so now so i think i started to think of the relationship a bit differently then mm. over lockdown because they were on their own in Newbridge, County Kildare, um, you know, you, your your worries focus on them more. You're worried, like I worry about my folks more. Um, I don't know what, like it's like when people go, um, what does it mean to be a man? Mm. And I always get kind of annoyed by that question because I don't think, what to be a good man is is different than what to be a good woman is. Yeah, I think that you have the same moral responsibilities, uh, and I I think some of those kind of narrow identity things. I think you have a responsibility to the people in your life to be kind and to care for them and worry about them. And when you are vulnerable yourself, you can expect that in return. Not mm. that it's a quid pro quo. That would be horrible. Yeah, um, yeah. But do do you think of that about the like? Is that just your worldview? Do you think like that thing of like to worry about the people? Yeah, I worry. I'm a worrier. And would you feel like would you want the people in your life to worry about you? Um, <laughs> I don't think so. Um, maybe I'm self obsessed and I want people to be thinking about me all the time. <laughs> No, I don't want them to be worried about me, but I do want. No, actually, I do. Like not, not, not like over overly worried about me. But there's that, there's that thing, and I think it's one of the reasons I still love phone calls. Mm. Is there's that thing when you're on the phone to somebody, 
and it happens both ways and you know somebody's voice so well you know that they're not feeling great yeah or and and i've had it the other way too where like my mom or a friend will go are you all right you know and it's and that worry is really like that little not to be obsessively worried about the people in your life but that like that's a really nice thing mm. when you go oh wow they they the, notice me they know they're kind of see me um which is why i worried about text-based communications all the time because mm. i don't think any of that is there i think it's too curated um i think phone calls are kind of and over lockdown i rang my folks a lot more than i used to Mm. Like I think I was ringing them every day, which I don't do normally. Mm. You know, because it was such a gorgeous image. I know we sort of passed through it, but with that image of uh, of your dad finding yeah. the the what the the, the Lego the yellow what was it oh, the yellow castle the, the yellow castle. But the fact that he built it like yeah, so, he built it, so did yeah. he what did he, did he plop it on the table and was and like what, what was he it? just found all the bits and he built it like he's a really handy man. You were talking earlier about not being able to do dad stuff. I can't do any. My dad comes up to our house and just like we have a joke where we call him Frain, like he's our <laughs> groundskeeper. He comes up to our terraced house and fixes things because he because he's retired and he, he kind of like like part of me is like we're pretending we're letting him do it because he wants to, but also we're getting like free repairs done, and it's because I'm useless, mm. you know. Anna's more used than me, but but Dad loves shit like that. That are we allowed cursing? Oh about yeah, this? yeah. Um, he loves kind of building things, making things, finding things, you know. Yeah, it's great. Come here. Thank you so much for doing this. No problem. I enjoyed it. I, I really appreciate it. You didn't get any numbers, yeah. um, but we had great chats. Um, is there anything I know? I So I will say it for you. I uh, I read your book. I, I, I think if I was to actually tell you how many times I've read it, it could be like shameful because I feel like I've read it two or three times and listened to it twice. Whoa, wow. Uh, thank you. Yeah, well, no, thank you because I I loved it. Um, so yeah, do you want to tell people where to find it? Um, and where to find you more generally? So okay, let's do your stupid idea. Is should be in most bookshops still, um, and that's my book of essays. And I write for the Irish Times every, most weeks. So I have a column every Friday, and I write reports and interviews. You're a Twitter person as well. Yeah, I'm on Twitter. So Patrick Frayne one. Patrick Frayne was set up by me years ago before I understood Twitter and I can't get into the account anymore and I think it's still there. So I am Pat at Patrick Frayne 1. Fantastic. What a way to end. Patrick Frayne, thanks for playing Personality Bingo. So, guys, what about that? A massive thank you to the brilliant Patrick Frayne for taking the time to come in and chat. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed that episode. In truth, as I'm sure you'll have heard in the episode, Patrick is an absolute hero of mine and it was a genuine pleasure to sit down and chat for a little over an hour. Like I said, you can get his book, OK, Let's Do Your Stupid Idea, at any good bookshop. I really couldn't recommend it enough. I just adored it. And from the chat with Patrick, I think you'll see how funny and uh, charming and insightful he is as a person and that absolutely 
come through in spades in the writing. Uh, you'll also catch him at the Irish Times where he uh, is a, a columnist there and yeah, anything he turns his hand to turns to gold so I can't wait to see what he does next. Uh, as always I want to give a, a massive shout out to uh, our wonderful uh, network here Headstuff Podcast Network. Uh, also to the brilliant Connor Nolan for our artwork to Liam Moore for our wonderful uh, theme music. Um, I also wanted to let you know that we will be back in a couple of weeks time with another fantastic episode you can catch me at tmoran93 you'll get Patrick at patrickfrain1 and yeah that's it for another episode of Personality Bingo with me Tom Moran This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network a hub for the creative and the curious Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.